This is what Isaiah, Amos's son, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest above the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways, that we can walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk in the Lord's light. This is God's word for God's people. Uh, Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So friends, we turn over the page, as it were, and start a new season. This Advent season. It is the start of the Christian New Year, actually. So, Happy New Year, everybody. You can see that's a quilt. Uh, Each column is a week in our uh, liturgical year that exists next door. Shout out to people who volunteer in Godly Play. You've probably seen that before. If you'd like to see that more, please talk to Natasha so you can volunteer in Godly Play. Um, But you can see kind of wraps around and the beginning of the year starts in that purple space with that pink interjection that we'll experience in a couple weeks of joy. I love that we scheduled our Oak Kids Christmas pageant on joy week um, because that'll surely be what we're experiencing. The church exists, the church comes out of a season of waiting in expectation. Uh, One of my favorite Um, quotes comes from uh, Henry Nouwen, and he says, the Lord is coming. The Lord's always coming. When you have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will recognize him at any moment. In this way, life is Advent. Life is about recognizing the coming of the Lord. Uh, Maybe in other words, in this World Cup season and in the famous words of Danny Rojas, I'll paraphrase, life is Advent, right? But Advent, Jesus is coming. It also refers to the end of the story. So the beginning of our New Testament story, this, this coming of this baby Jesus, but also the end of the story when the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples, he promises that he will return. John the Revelator has a vision that shows Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and uh, returns to judge and to make everything right that sin and death has damaged and destroyed. To overturn injustice and to establish shalom, wholeness and health and peace, new creation. 
This makes Advent a great time to sing songs that we just sang, like the Magnificat songs and like the Canticle of the Turning, because Advent is a little more subversive than just the touchy-feely runway to Christmas. This kind of return and this kind of kingdom that Jesus promises to bring seems really far off. It seems really unlike what we see and what we experience. So it's tempting to either fantasize about it or to screen it out completely from our expectations. But this is the time that we find ourselves in, this time between two advents, between two arrivals. It's exactly now and it is exactly here that being Christian means to learn to live appropriately between these two comings, under the rescuing rule of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. One advent is Jesus' birth, God with us. One is Jesus' coming again, God for us. Between these advents, Jesus continues to come to us over and over. Sometimes it really surprises us how Jesus comes to us. Oftentimes it comes to us in, the, in ways we wouldn't expect, in ways we wouldn't ask God to come to us. In the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, the closest to death. In these interruptions, through the poor, through children, through difficult people in our lives, through the elderly, through strangers, through immigrants and through refugees. Again and again. God comes to us. God challenges us in our notions that often get domesticated and calcified for what it might look like for God to come to us, for God to be with us, for God to be for us. This Advent, read through the beginning of the Gospels, maybe Luke's Gospel in particular, and you encounter these haunting stories of these characters in the Gospel where so few people recognize and receive the coming of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Like, except the shepherds, or Elizabeth and Zechariah, or Simeon and Anna, or the Magi later. Makes me wonder, what sort of people would we have to become to be people who could receive God when God arrives? How do we become more like Zechariah. Zechariah, refresher, was John the Baptist's dad. He was struck silent because he wanted to name him something other than what Elizabeth wanted, right? <laughs> but then he was filled with song at the arrival of his son John, Jesus' cousin. His joy was explosive. Sometimes it's, we forget that you know, Zechariah wasn't dealing with it like a playbook uh, for how this should work. First-time parents know this really intimidating feeling. They just send you home with a baby, and you're expected to know how to be a parent. How about when you're parenting John the Baptist, the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, who leaps in the womb because of what God is doing? Zechariah, John, they recognize the Lord's coming. Their life were different kinds of advents. How do we become more like Simeon? It says Simeon was righteous and devout. He, quote, waited for the consolation of Israel and was lit by the Holy Spirit. 
He waited in hope for salvation and somehow saw it when Mary came in with the baby Jesus. Mary, and a reminder, Mary and Joseph came into the temple that Simeon was waiting for this salvation, and they had like the lowest tier offering, the, 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 the way the poorest people could participate in the life of the worship of God. But Simeon somehow still recognized the Lord's coming. His life was Advent. How do we become more like Anna? Anna was an elderly woman, prophet, widow. She never left the temple. It reminded me a little of, of Pastor Meg's sermon from a couple weeks ago on Julian of Norwich, who lived kind of adjunct to the worship life of the church. It said, Anna fasted and prayed day and night. She situated herself in the temple, that nexus, that meeting place between God and humanity. And she gave thanks when she witnessed that same meeting place, that God and humanity coming in Jesus. She recognized the Lord coming. Her life was Advent. But then there are also opposites in these stories, and this should really haunt us. The opposite is Herod. Herod cannot receive the gift of Jesus as anything other than a threat. He, 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 he'd rather exterminate and safeguard against the coming of the Lord than move out of his throne of violence and coercion and welcome the true king in. You see, kings and queens and dictators and presidents and congressmen and rulers almost always have a problem with the arrival of the one true God. Rowan Williams has this beautifully noticed moment in our creed that we'll say later, the Apostles' Creed, the confession of our faith, that there are two non-Jesus people named in, in the creed. Can anyone name who these non-Jesus people are? Mary's one. Good, good. Seminary points. Good. Pilate is the other. Excellent. There will be prizes later. You see, you notice is that these two people might be listed in our keystone confession of our faith as examples, as paradigms, as archetypes of one person who says yes to God's coming, Mary, and one person who absolutely positively says no. Inherit or in Pilate. Mary has her life changed and participates in the changing of the world by bearing the work of God in her womb. Pilate washes his hands because Jesus' work and Jesus' words are just a problem to him, something to be dismissed, something to be dealt with. The Pilates and the Herods of the world they don't recognize, and even when they do recognize the coming of the Lord, they can't receive it. In some ways, their lives are not Advent. If life is Advent, if it is the recognition of the coming of God in our lives, before we can become the sort of people who can participate in that ministry, we have to become the sort of people who can imagine it, who can see it, who can receive it as a gift. We have to make room for it. This means clearing out space. It's hard to make room. It's hard to receive something if you have your hands full or there's no space in your life. We have to answer a call. Sometimes it means we have to be converted. We have to become different. We have to become the sorts of people who can receive the God who arrives to us as something other, 
something outside of us, salvation from outside of us, like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna. We need to be people who can receive also other people, not just an, a God who is other, but people who are other, people who are different from us. There's a few kind of tokens that I could think of. There's probably plenty more that are almost like little sacraments, like vi- tangible, visible signs of this huge spiritual reality. One of those is friendship. Think friendship, like true, deep friendship where you are looking side by side with someone else at the world can become a token of this sort of divine hospitality. You receive and make room in your life for someone who is not you. The weirder the friendship, the better, right? Uh, um, we don't always just have to be friends with someone who is just like us. That, that even, in, in a way, marks a maturity in our friendships. There's always those childhood friendships where you just like flock to someone who is just like you, or like in college, you become part of a club or a frat or a sorority, and everyone kind of thinks the same, dresses the same, looks the same. But a maturing friendship is a, a strange friendship where, where you, you partner across difference and you experience the world together. You receive and make room in your life for someone who is not you to walk with you. Maybe another one of these tokens is parenting. Uh, a token of this Advent life where you welcome a stranger into your life who will change you, who will change you. Today, our family celebrates Simeon's fifth birthday. I, really, I remember visiting this little liturgical church in the town where he was born days after we um, were able to take him out of the hospital. And we shared in the first Sunday of Advent. And his, the reading bore his namesake about Simeon in the temple. It was so great. Um, there's also uh, neighboring. Neighboring can be a, a sacrament, a token, a sign and symbol and foretaste of this sort of making room. Because being a neighbor requires us to notice. It requires us sometimes to negotiate the kind of love and care and need and also boundaries over a long period of time. We don't always get to choose our neighbors. Our neighbors also don't always get to choose us. But we can choose whether we're going to be neighbors or how we're going to welcome them. And, and as we welcome our neighbors, as we, uh, as we make room for them, we, we welcome through them the arrival of the God who comes to us again and again, who has taken up residence right next to us, right with us. Our text this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah. Sometimes Isaiah is known as the the fifth evangelist because there is just so much good news packed into the message of an eighth century before common era Israelite prophet. Isaiah's warning is that disobedience and rebellion and injustice and idolatry will lead to, to exile, to Babylon, to the belly of the beast, to captivity, to hopelessness, to a place of cultural accommodation and to a loss of memory. Because when you're away from home that long, it's easy to forget what home is like, 
to stop dreaming of coming home. But Isaiah won't let Israel forget. Won't let Israel stop dreaming. This is what the prophet does. The prophet is a a conduit, a a, a go-between for God's wisdom and God's vision. Prophets point out misalignment. Sometimes this happens by prophetic challenge. That's what gets prophets killed. Their words sting. They're rejected because they sound so harsh. They sound like God is against us when really we're just lining up against God. They sound like a parent's correction. But also sometimes those words can be a balm when they're received. The other side of the prophet's calling is prophetic encouragement. Words that heal. Words that give life. Words that are a welcome home. They remind and they bring comfort, comfort, my people. That's Isaiah 40. This is the precise setting for hope to unfold. When we light this first candle, it's a candle that uh, reminds us, is themed about hope. Hope happens in the not yet, in the already. It leans and stretches and pulls and strives and squints to see how God is already with us and how God longs to be with us in full. Hope for the prophet, and specifically in this reading today in Isaiah 2, Hope means the undoing of violence. The undoing of violent words and habits and tools and hopes and means. It means undoing the habits of making war. It means physically breaking our weapons in order to free up our hands to receive the arrival of God. Violence being changed into flourishing happens with heat and hammering that comes by God's arrival. This message of hope and lament, gosh, it rings so loud and true in the days and weeks after these recent gun violence attacks in Charlottesville and Colorado Springs and the Chesapeake. And I've added to this list since I started writing this sermon. And it's really disgusting that we have to leave like a space in an empty line so that we can just keep adding to this. It is a pandemic of mass gun violence. And yet we have this prophetic vision. God will judge between nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. They will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation. They will no longer learn how to make war. In, in, the, in this prophetic vocation, this is comforting and challenging. It is a beautiful picture of what happens when God arrives. It should work its way into all the corners of our lives and imaginations to disarm us and to make us more gentle people. I also love how some people have taken this very literally too. Not just like a, a general calling towards gentleness in the world, but there are some people that are like, there's this former Mennonite youth pastor in Colorado Springs who learned how to become a blacksmith. And he created this <laughs> company, Matt, I think there's a site called Raw Tools. 
<laughs> raw is war spelled backwards, <laughs> where he literally heats and beats guns into gardening tools. The first gun he converted into a garden tool came from a friend in Colorado Springs who wanted to get rid of an AK-47 he had bought to protect himself after the 9-11 attacks. In this work, this hard work, not only are these instruments of war being made harmless, they are being made useful. There's something so gospel about that. Over the years, this organization has decommissioned and repurposed thousands of weapons into spades, guns into gardening tools, semi-automatics into mattocks, right? There's a distinctly faith-based thing happening here, too. Shane Claiborne has, has uh, joined with us, and he describes this movement of God, that many of these people are just tired of violence and want to be rid of guns that... Um, once signaled a posture of defensiveness or hopelessness. So he said a lot of these guns come from friends' suicides um, or from military veterans. And he describes the healing that comes from the hammer and the forge. He says, part of why we go to the forge and transform metal into guns, uh, metal and guns into plows, is that it's very difficult to argue with the kind of sacramental, um, the kind of holy mystery uh, that happens when a mom who lost her kid begins pounding a gun and screaming at the top of her lungs. We've had police chiefs and Republicans and Democrats and gun owners and survivors of mass shootings that have gathered at the forge to take the same hammer. Isaiah's hopeful vision, swords in the plowshares, is hospitable and creative. You see, the, the weapons, guns, violence, war, are fundamentally inhospitable and destructive. Isaiah's vision is hospitable and constructive, creative. Not zero-sum, not win-lose, not life-death, not me or you, but garden tools and plowshares and all these rehabilitative programs are funded by an imagination of abundance, me and you, us, together on this earth, yielding everything we need, more than we need, into the foreseeable future. There's no more time to learn war. Because we have to learn about plowing and planting and growing and harvesting. And all of that work goes on and on and on. We don't just end it. This is the Advent vocation. When God arrives, we get into things like hospitality and cultivation. Consider that a challenge this Advent season. Consider the ways that you and I are being called ourselves towards being beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks. Having our violence and our decreation reversed. Sometimes that happens painfully, viscerally. I used to think this vision of, of uh, Isaiah 2 was like, this really exciting thing, like when that happens, when God shows up, everyone's going to be so into this. There's going to be mass gun buybacks, and people are going to be so excited. I don't think that's how it's going to be. I think there's going to be some pushback on this, right? And we feel that, that pushback, that pushback runs straight through each and every one of us when God arrives in our life, when God starts to put his finger on on. The, the ways we want violence, the ways we want payback, the ways we want to settle it. 
sometimes we're just more used to the way things are, these old ways of being used for sin and death, when we need to learn no longer how to make war, how to no longer participate and perpetuate these systems, these cycles. This transformation and this sanctification is not only good because it stops her, but it's good because it fits us for this age to come. I, th I think about this, bear with me here, I think about this line from Back to the Future a lot. When Doc Brown um, says to Marty, uh, Marty's concerned that they don't have enough runway to take off, uh, you know, to get up to, what, 96 gigawatts or whatever, right? Uh, and Doc quips, Marty, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads, okay? Uh, Matt Cooper's with me. I see that hand. Yes. 88, I'm begging my pardon, yes. In this vision of Isaiah, though, Jesus' arrival says something like, weapons, where we're going, we don't need weapons. We need things like plows. We need shovels. We need rakes. We need all these implements to cultivate, to make, to grow, to, to, to make more, not less. Plows to break up the ground and plant new seed that will grow and give life. Yes, pruning hooks to harvest and trim for more growth, absolutely. But throw away all of your acquired knowledge about how to leverage yourself over and against others and get close to the ground and to each other. That is what Jesus' arrival is saying. Because God's decisive action is in this creation to bring about a new creation. This is the Christmas miracle of the Incarnation, to get close to the ground and to come close to us. And then God's decisive action will consummate into a new creation. Jesus coming again to reverse all of these curses, to transplant a tree of life right in the middle of downtown for the healing of the nations. And so his call is for us to go and do likewise in this Advent season and in our Advent lives. Can you pray with me? Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, hearts to desire, um, minds to imagine the ways that you come to us again and again. Grow in us a capacity to receive you. Where it feels like we don't have room, um, clear out, make room. Where it feels like um, our hands are too full with uh, things to protect us, uh, beat those things into something that can bring about growth and new life. Uh, thanks for coming to us. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.